have a sense of purpose for yourself, which you guard and nourish through all your activities. That is your only friend. Welcome to Good on Purpose. This is a podcast for anyone searching for something more meaningful in their life and work. I'm Nilesha Chauvet, Managing Director of Good, a purpose-driven creative agency working with brands and charities to help make the world a better place. In each episode, I'll be speaking to people who've made a conscious and deliberate decision to give something back. People from all walks of life who represent a new generation of leaders changing and shaping the world today. Listen in as I dig deep to get to the very heart of the story they really want to tell, and most importantly, to understand why they're telling it now. In this episode, I'm joined by Jatinder Varma, a British Indian theatre director and arts activist. In 1977, he founded Tara Arts, the first ever Asian, Black and ethnically diverse theatre company in the UK. It provided and still provides a much-needed platform for performers, writers, directors, musicians and choreographers. Since leaving Tara Arts, he set up and now runs JV Productions with designer Claudia Mayer. Jatinda talks to us about his purposeful journey into the arts and shares what he's learned. Jatinda, a very warm welcome to our podcast. It's such a pleasure to speak to you. Um, I'd love to start talking to you about the impetus and the inspiration for your journey into the arts, because I'm sure it couldn't have been easy for you when in those days your peers were opting for careers as a lawyer, doctor, setting up small businesses in this country. There weren't many people of colour back then, and we're not fully representative now. So what was your inspiration and what led you to a career in theatre? Thank you very much for the invitation, and I'm delighted to take part. I think if there was a one-word answer to this, which there isn't, but for want of a better idea, I'll start with immigration. And what I mean by that is that I know I felt it that when we arrived in 1968 and I was 14, the sense of a kind of an obligation, a duty. You've traveled over oceans. What for? Is becomes the kind of question, I think, for all immigrants. And in a way, you know, we each answer it in, in different senses. But I suppose underlying it all, if there's one common factor, it is that you want to do good. Whether that's good personally, whether that's good societally, it, it doesn't really matter. But it, a good in the sense of improve, or in the sense of have better thoughts, all those sorts of things. So I'd say that that really has been the sort of driving force in my entry into the arts, as well as approach to the arts. Specifically, and in a sense as part of that story, there was a death, or rather a a killing. Specifically, the killing of this young sick boy in Southall in 1976, Gurdeep Singh Chagar. And in a way, you know, what was really fascinating, and when I look back at it as well, while in itself it was very tragic, the fact is that 
I didn't know him. And most of the people who were affected did not know that child. But there was an absolute sense that there for the uh, uh, grace of God go I. That it was the color that had killed him. And kind of, it's an echo of what a lot of us felt um, last year with George Floyd's death. That there is something about being colored, for want of a better word, in this society, which stands you out and could lead to injustices of various kinds. And so that acted as a specific spur in terms of why theatre. So do you think then that the rise of Black Lives Matter has been a key milestone in your career then? Because you're talking about there were two key events that were really quite defining for you. So clearly that one in South Hall and then this one with George Floyd. What's the difference between then and now, do you think then? Oh, part of it is, is a kind of despair. You think this is like the, the kind of classic figure of Sisyphus. You know, you roll up a stone up a hill and it comes down again and you have to start all over again. Yet, yet within all of that, I remember when we did our first play, which was an adaptation of a, a play by Rabindranath Tagore. And during the second performance, on the way to the second performance, I turned around and said to one of my friends who helped form uh, Tara with me, that our fate would be to beat our head against the wall, and it'll be, blood, it'll be the blood that we shed that'll nourish the ones to come after us. I mean, you know, it was terribly kind of <laughs> romantic um, young person's uh, sentiment. But when I think back to it, I think that that is what we are all, when I say we, those who are minorities in a society, in a way, that is our stuff of life. It doesn't matter what the generations are. That is the dialogue. And actually, it's a very productive dialogue because it does lead to changes. You're not going to change the air around you. But you are going to be able to make small changes which then accumulate. So to give one example, you know, in our time, words like those were ubiquitous. In part because of, uh, of efforts of people like ourselves, those words have now become impossible to say in public. And I think, well, that's, that's right, because by making it impossible to say in public, you are effectively changing people's behavior. You can't legislate for the heart, but you can legislate for the paths you walk down. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we've been in our careers for at least a few decades now, and Yet we remember a time when these words were being used. I mean, I can remember being called a and a curry muncher, and, and that was part of your childhood 
it was quite normal to hear these words. As a creative person, do you think, because you have been this incredible trailblazer, and I think that not enough people know of the work and your contribution to society and the the arts, but as a trailblazer, do you feel that you've had to carry a disproportionate amount of pressure and burden as a trailblazer when actually maybe you just wanted to focus on writing plays and putting on great performances? Yeah. It's a very interesting question that, in a way, I did not embark on the career and I did not continue with the career with the sense of being a trailblazer. I was made aware of the consequences of my actions, and in fact, I was always conscious of it, in a, in a sense. But you're not trying to kind of fly a flag. What you're trying to do is to say, this is what I believe in. At the same time, your senses are aware and say, well, actually, part of that belief, how do I carry that belief through? So to give you an example, when the National Theatre first invited me to come and do a production, there were several considerations going on. What was going on in the world around me? And at the time, in 89, the biggest question that it affected all of us was the whole idea of religion having an influence on our public lives. Uh, so this was the, the fatwa against Silvan Rushdie. And part of me felt that this is something which really does affect us. And I need to find a way of talking about it. But at the same time, to talk of it in the things that I'm interested in, which is via comedy. So, in fact, I found an absolute echo in a play written by Moliere, a French playwright, in the 17th century called Tartuffe, which is about a priest, but a hypocritical priest. And for me, that was absolutely the right thing to do. The second thing became that, look, I have been invited at the National. Uh, fine, there is a sense which I have to accept that, okay, I'm a director, that is of interest and so on and so forth. But being hard-nosed about it, it also happens to be I am coloured and it would be a very useful badge to, to have. And so what should I do with that? So I thought, right, okay, I'm going to go the whole hog, which is my company will be entirely Asian and I will relocate this play by Moliere, which was set in Louis XIV, France, to Mughal India. And so I'm making no compromises. And I will start the play with a benediction in Urdu, which I'll then translate on stage. Now, I've gone into all that detail just simply to say, well, that becomes... Someone else could look upon all that and say, okay, that was a kind of trailblazing moment. But from my point of view, it was, this is what I want to do. And I'm also aware of the world I'm living in. And so the ways in which this work might well be seen. It's difficult to disconnect the two, which is your artistic endeavours and the world in which you operate. I think it's a really interesting tension 
that you raised because on the one hand, you have been someone who has pioneered to give Asians a voice, but you've also lived through the Salman Rushdie episode where minorities were actually trying to shut down an artistic voice. So this is our own people doing that to ourselves. Talk to me about that time and what was going through your mind then as a as a creator. Well, in a sense, you see, I suppose there was a there was some training in that moment, and this goes back to 1979. So we, you know, this was the very early days of Tara, and there was an Asian Youth Conference taking place in Leicester. So they heard about us and suggested, well, you know, why don't we come and perform some sketches, which we did. The last sketch was about this elderly man that we'd met at a wedding, an Asian man, who was fantastically scurrilous about the priests at the wedding. And I mean, you know, and we couldn't believe it. So we went to another wedding knowing fully well that he'd be there and sort of wrote down (laughs) what he was saying. And this became our sketch. In the middle of presenting that sketch, the audience, which had been laughing with us right up to then, this is all young Asians, went quiet. And one beefy lad came up onto the stage and said, you know, you are uh, belittling our culture. Stop this. I don't know what possessed me. I was in the middle of uh, playing this older man. So I just sort of said to him, in using a four-letter word, get off my stage. And strangely, he complied. The evening became very violent. You know, people did all sorts of things to us. And the following day, there was a sort of plenary session where the conference wanted us to apologize for belittling the culture. And, of course, we were absolutely determined not to do so, but also saying, look, come on. Have you ever heard of Punjabi skits? I mean, for us, this was very much in the vein of Punjabi humor, that you know, you can be scurrilous, you can... The whole point about comedy is to is that your targets are the shibboleths of your times. And looking on from there to 89, so 10 years later with the Salman Rushdie incident, of course, the scale of it was much bigger and there are lives at stake, and indeed several lives were lost. But, and I remember taking part in a television debate about this, and saying that, look, we can't become guardians of culture, because culture is a constantly moving thing. And if we can't criticize our gods, as it were, We have no future as individuals, let alone as a community. Forget even about racism and so on and so forth. And that comes from the sense that, you know, one of the great lessons about anti-racism is not just there but for the grace of God go I, but also I am not immune from the evils of racism. And therefore, we must not get into this position of being holier than thou. That's a real danger 
we're, it, we're absolutely right in looking at racism as a form of social injustice. And therefore, there are much wider connections to be made. There are all sorts of injustices in any society. I mean, it's great that we're having those conversations about how we make theatre and performance more accessible. You have spent your life providing a platform for diverse talent when you set up Tara Arts in 1977, but you've moved on to set up your own venture. So talk to me about that shift and what the inspiration was behind that move. Well, when we set up Tara, there was clearly very much a kind of an immigrant impulse. You know, there was a voice that was not on the public stages. We want to claim that voice. As time went on, it was also very clear that we are following a kind of standard immigrant model. Most of us, when we came here, you know, you don't suddenly own your house. You go from rented accommodation to rented. And that's what we were doing as a touring theatre company. You go from one venue to the other. After about 20 years, I did begin to think, well, is that all? Should we not have a home of our own? Should we not become landlords? And part of that thinking was that this whole area of black arts, Asian arts, diverse arts in the theatre will only achieve some kind of recognition over time, across generations, with a building, with a space. And that's been the nature of, certainly of English theatre, that Buildings carry a history. They also create career opportunities and so on, so on, so on, so forth. And so by the beginning of this century, that became my project. I wanted to turn our building, which we'd acquired through a grant, into a proper theatre. And part of that movement to create this theatre building was then also to say this is this is kind of me passing on. I don't mean literally in terms of death, but that, you know, there, it's now there is a structure there for others to fill and follow on. And so it became kind of logical that having uh, built the, that, that theatre, which was all set up in 2016, that it was time now to make a move. And so I set up... Uh, a JVP, which is not a terribly original name since it's just my initials. But the idea again there was that this area of thought and practice, which I would define as a cross-cultural area, that has been the stuff of my life. It connects up with my history, it connects up with my personal life, and it connects up with my present and my future. So what that's what this company will, will focus on. And in a way, I'm not obliged to anyone. Now it is projects that I would want to undertake, but which in some ways continue to explore this territory of what cross-culturalism means. So one of the first things we did was there was a play uh, written in, in India in the mid-19th century, which was the first play to have been banned by the British. And as a result, 
censorship came about. And it was about Indigo. And what fascinated me about that play was that Indigo is the only natural dye in the world. And today there is a sort of revival of Indigo from a sustainable agricultural point of view. And so I'd got in touch with a writer here saying, well, look, you know, do you want to have another look at this play? How would we do it today? Bearing in mind that this crop has got a different kind of feel today. It's almost, if the original play was during the height of empire and, and industrialism, doing the play today, it is a kind of post-colonial period. But also, it is a period where people are looking at other alternative models to, to agriculture, to capitalism. And so there was that play. And we eventually, we were going to do the play as a live play. But in fact, we ended up filming because of COVID. So I worked with actors in Bangladesh and with creatives here. What does cross-culturalism mean to you? How are you defining that? Uh, I would define it with another word, which you're bound to ask me what it means. Binglish. And Binglish, I, I mean, again, there's nothing terribly original about it. I was very struck in the 80s when I was traveling around in India and in various parts of the East the way in which local languages and English were just sliding back and forth, back and forth. In Singapore, or in Delhi, it was called Hinglish. In Singapore, it was called Singlish. And I thought, well, that is it. That defines our society today. A kind of black, bastardly, beautiful, whatever version of B you want. But that English, that, and we see it in uh, a fantastic comedy series, Goodness Gracious Me, you know, Kiss My Chuddies. What's great about the English language is its flexibility. It has absorbed so much. I can never forget that the ingredient that we all use every day, shampoo to wash our hair, actually comes from Champa in India. And before that, there was no hair washing with oil so it, you know, before the, the, the 18th century. So there's so many loan words. And that's what, how I see today's society, that it is in that wonderful mix where a new language is being formed. To give you one example, when we arrived here in February 1968, we spent about four months going from place to place, looking for a room to let. And almost everywhere, bar one place, we were told, we don't want the smell of curry. 30, 40, 50 years later, curry is the national dish. Our stomach has been changed, which means our tastes have been changed, of the country. And that's how I see cross-culturalism, that this is a kind of constant dialogue between here and there, wherever your there happens to be. I'm really interested to know, from your perspective, who owns the cultural narrative for Binglish? So, for example, how did you feel when Andrew Lloyd Webber came out with Bombay Dreams and suddenly 
we've got an east-west story hitting the West End, which was the first time. I mean, it was a seminal moment in British culture. What was going through your mind? <laughs> yes, obviously great envy. <laughs> oh, damn, you know, I didn't have that much money to to, to make that kind Did of you say, kiss my juddies? <laughs> yes, I did, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, you know, fine, I mean, but on the other hand, I also felt, hey, great, this fellow is taking my own sense of English forward to a vast audience. Excellent, join me, <laughs> you know, great, we can kind of join hands. And I think that there's always going to be that sort of tension. But in a way, so long as people are adding to the store of not just stories, but how we tell stories, it seems to me we're all engaging in that act of what is the society we are making up here. I'm really interested to learn a little bit about you. So talk to me about what you do day to day. What, what does a typical day look like in the world of Jatinda Verma? <laughs> right. Well, the day starts really with me having a quiet, quiet tea uh, with some honey in it uh, and checking my emails and so forth. And then making some tea for my wife. She tends to wake up a little later than me. And that's a kind of almost become a ritual now, which is great. And then it usually is sort of uh, getting on to, to the screen and just seeing, well, okay, who's been in touch and what, what's sort of happening. And when I can, and it's, in fact, always happens before lunch, is just a time to either read a book, but it's a kind of cogitation time. Now, it could be to do with the project I'm currently doing or when I'm not doing a project, okay, you know, something sort of stirring. What, what is it? And so thoughts come, lines come sometimes, which I quickly, if I think they're any good, <laughs> I, I note down and put in my notebook. And once that sort of period is over, then, you know, obviously there's all sorts of chats going on at home. And then one's usually either going out to the park or something like that, or I'm, I'm off to work. And that's kind of, I mean, nothing particularly kind of significant. Um, but we're always on the lookout for either it's a walk or a trip we might take. I mean, it could be a half-day trip to places we haven't been to, just to get a sense of, the country. So recently, it was uh, Suffolk, and part of it was that there was this whole. Uh, it had been an article some time ago about these painted churches. I was just very keen to see. Well, what do these painted churches look like? And it became a fascinating insight uh, into England itself. So there was one church. And on the floor, you know, there'd been various people who had sort of um, contributed to the church. And this uh, must have been around somewhere in the 14th or 15th century. And there was a, a, a kind of dedication, which was by a woman. And it was an absolute sort of 
I mean, it could have been written by a modern woman. There were complaints about the two or three husbands that she'd had. <laughs> so very kind of critiques of that. And then, you know, and why she ended up donating to, to this church. And he thought, well, that's just really great because you think you are, A, in a rural part of the country, which you didn't know much about, and that it's got nothing to do with you. And suddenly you come across something, you think, wait, hey, hang on, this is very much part of my world now. <laughs> I think one of the greatest challenges for a creative person must be closing the gap between the creative vision that you have in your mind and seeing your work manifest before you. So in your case, your work is very live, it's on stage, it's very public. What's your creative process and how does that differ, do you think, from other forms? I suppose one of the differences in the theatre is that you're always aware that this is the product of many creatives. So you're more, as a director, you're much more like, like a conductor or, or like a chef. You know, there are these ingredients and those ingredients have got to be spot on. So, you know, you're dependent upon your actors, you're dependent upon your designers, you're dependent upon your stage managers, all these people you're dependent upon and all of whom have got views about the piece that you're working on. Now, and as have you. And you're having to kind of balance this. At least that's been my approach. And so what I've found over the years is that not to be too planned and then learn this paradox, which is a, I think it's a Buddhist paradox. Hold on to your certainties with a vengeance. Let go of them lightly. And so I, I've now begun to feel that, okay, I, I start the process with a taste of what this play is. And then I see what the designers have come up with, what the actors, how they are looking at that taste and forming it. And so then it helps me to say, okay, here are various sorts of choices and that we have together created the actual final shape of that taste. While at the same time, constantly questioning, well, is that taste right? Maybe there was something else. And in fact, yesterday something happened with a particular kind of approach to a line, which I thought was wrong. Now when I look back, I think, no, actually, they were absolutely right. It's changing the way, if, if we go with what I had, it's changing the way it, uh, the, the ending's going to work. So I have to go back and say, right, okay, forget what I did. Let's do that one. Uh, so I think that's probably the big thing is that, A, it's, it's a much more of a collaborative art form. And B, that it starts with a relatively less degree of knowledge in that it's not completely formed in your head. The formation is happening in front of you at the time that you are working. And then the third ingredient is that is one which is the biggest unknown, which is the audience. The play only becomes a play with an audience, and that you have no clue on. So 
you have some things as both actors as well as the director of what is the kind of mood possibly of a particular audience just from life but you don't know what will tickle them that can only happen when you do it and that's the other side of what makes it so unique and part of the kind of danger of the theater you dive into an unknown uh, the first performance is a complete unknown you have no idea other than what you have been training on that's the only thing you can depend on so do you think the theater is the way in which you have expressed your life purpose or do you think that there are other avenues that you will still like to explore oh yes I, you know what i've always been conscious of is theater is is like me uh, as an immigrant you are a kind of potpourri of influences and that's what theater is you know it's a potpourri of all the art forms and i would like to now just sort of pull out one odd art form from the theater and say okay now what if i explore that and so literature writing of some form is clearly uh, one thing painting is another we'll see how far I, 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 I do that i know that the disciplines are each of those require a different kind of discipline the biggest thing i, I suppose which i wish i could do i love music and i've always used music in my work and as time goes on i'm so conscious of the lack of facility with the music i can't play i can't sing i and i and i don't know whether in fact it's possible to to train now in playing any any instrument but yeah it's never too late jitinder no, it never is yes I, it's I, never I too late yeah <laughs> no absolutely absolutely so finally what advice would you give to someone who's interested in pursuing a career in theater i would say that have a sense of purpose you don't have to define it in exact terms but that there is a purpose in this it's not just because you want to be famous you won't be and accept that uh there will be knocks but that's you know that's like in in every walk of life but it's that purpose you see that's the thing to really nourish because that at the end of the day will sustain you throughout the years one of the first things that we do as a kind of process come to produce a play the first time i read it something sticks there's a kind of feeling that sticks and i hold on to that i don't write it down it just is a feeling it's a kind of taste and actually now i realize that what it is is that feeling is giving me why i want to do this and that's the biggest advice i could give is that have a sense of purpose for yourself which you guard and nourish through all your activities that is your only friend nothing else
you will encounter lots of great colleagues, great collaborators, and so forth. But ultimately, it's your sense of purpose which will be your companion. Jatinda Varma, thank you so much for joining us and sharing some of your insight and inspiration. It has been an incredibly rich conversation. And as a second generation Indian, I feel I owe a great deal of thanks to a first generation um, (laughs) Indian who has really trailed the blaze and given us a voice. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Good On Purpose. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to tune in for more, don't forget to hit subscribe before you leave. We'd love to hear your feedback and your suggestions for future episodes and guests. And you can do that either by getting in touch by email, hello at goodagency.co.uk, or you can find out more on our website, which is www.goodagency.co.uk. Thanks again for tuning in and hope you can join us next time.